Okay, it's just gone 11.30, so what we're hoping to do is maybe take about 40 minutes now. We'll see how things go, and that will give us a, a nice 40 minutes as well for, for coffee and, and networking, um, and, and maybe for, for the ripples to flow, as, as the President suggested, maybe, maybe to see where, where things might go. So the setup for this stage is we'll take um, questions and comments and ideas and observations from the floor. If you could keep them short, just so as many people as possible can participate. If you could say who you are and where you're from, and we'll take maybe groups of three before handing them back to the panel. If you want to direct particularly to one person at the panel, please indicate that. Otherwise, we'll, we'll let the panel um, take up on, on any question, I think. Um, so, any indication of who would like to be the brave person? John, thank you. Okay, thank you, John. And um, I'll just gather up a couple more to, to set the ball rolling. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. And maybe one from Padder. Thank you. Thank you all very much for a fascinating morning. Uh, just a few specific contributions. I imagine that the Bolania Forum has had a, uh, a few, and perhaps a few rich insights into the uh, process of the leadership. But there are two of the issues I was a bit surprised Gordon touched on this morning. The first is his distinction of quotations from Aristotle between formal and substantive economics. And he emphasizes very strongly that these are two totally different things. There, it's not just that there's one way to do philosophy or the other. I do think this is really important as a starting point. The second thing is, I really take Mariana's point about telling new stories. That seems to me to be the great crisis of our times, that we have no progressive stories. We have a defense of a liberal status quo, and we have a right-wing story of all sorts of sim oversimplified and liberal claims that obviously accuse the people who are marginalized by the dominant story. But we need to, we need to complement our stories with models. There's a great report by Shutter from the European Commission on the Transition to a Low-Carbon Society where he talks about the need for local authorities to be funding innovative experiences at local level. So I think that that's really important that we need to look at what's happening in local communities. And of course, Mariani puts huge emphasis on the importance of community. In fact, I came across a quote from him the other day where he said that when we socialize the means of production, we don't hand them over to the state, we hand them to communities. Communities should own the means of production, which is very rich and radical and I think a very important point to make. Uh, so I, I suggest that there are all sorts of ideas if we go back to Bacon, where we look at not reforming the system, please, the system 
That's, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> okay, three, three really good questions, I think, in terms of getting the conversation going. I'm going to start off with Ian because two questions were very direct to you. And then maybe Marianne and President, you might take up Padre's questions. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, the first was, uh, was John on compensation. Uh, it's very difficult to compensate people uh, via the social security system because uh, it depends on, on where they live, uh, rural, uh, urban, whether they're connected to, to grids uh, uh, and so forth. Um, th th there are too many variables here, it seems to be, uh, that for, the, for the social security system uh, t to handle. Also, uh, as um, the m carbon price in increases, you have to increase continually the, the, the compensation which is, which is paid, um, which, which will soon absorb all, all, all the funds. Uh, and, and thirdly, it is much better to go for retrofitting and programs like that. So I'm, uh, I'm following here the Hills report on, on fuel poverty. The return from investing in, in retrofitting houses um, was many, many times greater uh, than purely monetary compensation, whether this is done by the social security system or by giving all citizens a, a, a small weekly allowance or whatever it is. So um, uh, I'm not ruling out uh, retrofitting programs directed, first of all, to poorer households and poorer communities. That's the, that's the way to go. We used to have a program like called Warm Front, which did that in the, in the UK, but it was... a uh, cancelled by the Conservative government. Um, and then on, on consumption, yes, I was, I was anxious through, through the talk that um, I was underplaying the, su the supply side uh, issues. Um, I, I, I'm taking them for granted and I, I, I knew that Mariana would be, would be talking about those. Uh, and there is evidence. I, I said necessities are always high carbon. Uh, in two countries, Sweden and Norway, they're not because they have um, community heating and well-insulated housing and all the rest of it. Uh, so you don't find that factor. So, of course, we must push as hard as possible with that retrofitting and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the supply side comes in well with the with the emphasis on uh, sports utility vehicles, for example. I mean, we, we have to start thinking about how to curb dangerous luxury consumption. Um, so I, there's sort of two parts to my answer. Does, does, is, is that okay? Can I leave Palanyu to you? Yes, you're, you're quite right. But yes, decarbonisation of all energy supplies is, 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 is crucial. But energy is only about a quarter of total carbon emissions, isn't it? You've got agriculture, you've got steel and cement, uh, you've got buildings. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I mean, you can take up again. In, can in I actually start with that as a way to get yep, to the communities? Because yeah. I think... Um, it's crucial. It's a crucial question. I think it's, it's more to answer it in different ways. Yeah. One thing is kind of just making a list of all the bad stuff, like SUVs and, you know, what I, important. And those numbers yeah. were striking, <laughs> really important, because they were just so, you know, because then one starts to ask, look at all the other things that might be like that. But another view would be, what does it mean to have a massive transition of literally the entire economy, production, distribution, and consumption? and what can we learn from previous transitions. So I work quite a bit with Carlota Perez, uh, a wonderful woman who just became 80 years old in September and is still as fertile in her thinking and publishing and writing um, as ever. So I really recommend you read her work. And she talks about, for example, that the mass production revolution, which created a massive change in production, distribution, and consumption, would not have had the effect it did without that demand side pull from suburbanization. And people didn't just wake up and want to go to the suburbs. Um, it came out of policy. Um, and so what does it mean to look at green 
and green kind of demand side policies as not demand or supply, kind of coming to this dichotomous way that it was just being framed, but as a way to really pull through these big supply side potential innovations to actually get fully deployed and diffused. So currently the running joke is, and it's actually Robert Solo and Robert Gordon who did this, they put up an indoor toilet here and the internet there. Like, which one would you get rid of, you know? So the, the assumption is actually the internet and the whole IT revolution hasn't actually had the massive impact that electrification had. And that's an unfair comparison because what actual electrification had was this massive amount of demand side and that green itself should be seen as a new direction even for ICT. So then the next question on communities, I'll, I'll focus more on the community side because it's so important, is who decides? You know, is this kind of big brother telling us what the missions are or why it's not suburbanization but something else? And the work that I've been doing on missions or on Europe, that's the first question, who selects the mission? So that kind of Apollo 11, you know, celebration this year, 50th anniversary, fine, that was very top down as inspirational, interesting, you know, for the kind of thinking about the tools and the cross-sectoral collaboration, fine, but we're not gonna do a green transition from some sort of ministerial dictate as inspirational as the minister's or president's speech might be. The real question is how do you bring to the table different voices, including, by the way, labor's voice, and the notion of the just transition, which you mentioned, um, which I think is really important, and Sharon Burroughs, one of the leading uh, labor uh, people in the world, has talked about it, the OECD picked it up. As important as that is, it's, it's too late. You can't ask labor to wait for someone else to define the transition and then to be like, oh wait, workers are gonna get screwed in the process when we move from you know, brown to green industry, so we have to invest in their, in their skills and for the transition. Those voices need to be at the table, even defining what does a green city look like? What does a, you know, a green transition, what does that mean? And from there, I think it's interesting to learn from Germany because without the green movement, right, movements, we should remember labor movements got us the weekend and the eight hour workday. The green movement has been very important to raising this whole issue of sustainability to the fore. And what Angela Merkel then did was she captured that opportunity to create what later became the Energiewende. And that created really tough conditions on the steel sector, for example, to change. So coming back to my point about conditionalities, and this is where I think the state is fundamental. It has to be conditional. It cannot be voluntary, like do you wanna be green or not? You have to be. You don't tell them how to be green, but the steel sector in Germany, instead of just saying bail me out, bail me out, like they did here in May and this week in Italy, they're asking as usual to be, get bailed out, the state said, okay, you wanna be helped? You're going through a crisis only if you lower massively your material content. So the, state, so the steel sector currently in Germany is really innovative, not because it decided to be, but because it had to be in order to get, for example, funds from the KFW, the public bank. And this is the interesting conversation. It's not about do we nationalize steel or privatize things, it's how do you fundamentally, and that's what I was trying to focus on, the deal bit is just as important as the green bit, fundamentally change these public-private relationships, but who brings to the table a reimagining, a redefinition of what we even mean by green has to be, I totally agree, not just communities, but movements. And there's no empathy 101 classes in you know, the masters of public administrations given around the world. The state doesn't necessarily know how to really listen to movements and not fear them. And that's one of the first things also, in, in, again, the institute that I run, we're asking what are the new capabilities required by civil servants, and one of them is this, how to really engage horizontally with movements. Okay, thank you. I, I think that there is, uh, my main interest is in the discussion that is not taking place, and that's one of the reasons I organized today. But one of the things that is, strikes me right across the, the, the disciplines and even in the questions is the reluctance to engage with what I call with asymmetric uh, power relations. Uh, I was 21 when I went to university, I was 28 when I was appointed first, and there was still a literature on, po on power. We even had one person in the faculty who was able to publish a book on power. Power was taken off, the tape can't be discussed. And then uh, the other side of it, it I don't want to give a, a very interest. I was very, very interested in that for reason because there was a certain hostility to Marxism, but it was also good or other work, which was I, I left aside at the time, which was how we feel like some of the insights of Marx had in fact actually uh, 
been lost and destroyed by Ingalls interpreting some of the insights through the English industrial experience. But we're now also in relation to, I was looking at a, re a recent report from the World Bank on trading for development in the age of global value chains. Well, even my colleagues would, would know what manages. We're being sold a pop on that one as well. In the reopening of that, it states that global value chains boost incomes, create better jobs, and reduce poverty. Uh, this is not so. The sample, for example, in relation to that, had both developed and undeveloped countries. And when you took out the developed countries and you looked what had happened in the undeveloped countries, the biggest uh, uh, labor human rights abuses possibly at the moment on the planet are female workers in Japan, who has the largest number of uh, women with miscarriages, largest number of women, uh, their suicides and so forth very much related to the fact that they're spending 80 hours in, uh, let's say, Samsung, I'm thinking of that firm, 80 hours standing in, in blinding conditions and, and so forth. So the, the, so the issue is, once again, <coughs> the qualify, the, the notion of when people say what it is, this is your Polanyi question. Uh, it's regarded as impolite to in some economic areas to say, when you hear a phrase like the completion of the internal market, that doesn't take anything that Ian is talking about, Mariana is talking about in relation in many, many cases. It doesn't speak about redistributing opportunities within that particular market. And then you, you get one again when you take a phrase like the one I was just plowing my way through this one, and it was about the integrated global market. Well, the integrated global market, you have a two choices of it, a set of revolutions across the globe, or you have, in fact, some kind of moral intellectual discussion in different places where you privilege and value, for example, those places in Latin America that you mentioned, where people live simple lives but live longer and so forth, but also, why can't we? This is the this is the whole point. It is rather like saying, uh, "Do you believe is the, the the Earth goes around the Sun, or what is? Do you think is? Are you a flat Earth or whatever?" The same thing about the notion of the completion of the internal market. Is my I have a simple thing. It's that it should be submitted to interrogation. I think equally in relation to the question of the, 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 the question in relation to the trading for development in the age of global value chains. I think there should be a strong literature in relation to just simply not agreeing with me, but simply submitting, submitting the statements that are made uh, to critique, uh, uh, to, to empirical critique, rather than in, in affecting the notion, you know, where people all say, well, it must be so, the notion, and, and then the, the other the one. To, on the question of Polanyi, which is fast one of many cases, well, you, we, you, you and I and all of us must think, uh, how did Friedrich von Hayek become popular and Polanyi not succeed? And the argument in part about it is, was because of the evasion of the discussion on power. Both of us are members of social sciences that started with the flourish in the 1960s. I'm a founding member of the Sociological Association, Political Science Association, and I've, I've seen all these. When I was in the United States, the American Sociological Association, and we moved from grand theory to what's called middle range theory, and then middle range theory become a set of generalizations, and they become a set of generalizations then that are, uh, that are, are is simply not submitted to empirical test. Meanwhile, also, you had to be doing something, in fact, actually, to show that you had a heart. So you turn uh, the profit studying the poor into an industry. And uh, uh, that's, you see, the, there is, you see, there's this worry for another, in many, many, many cases, that there is a thought thing involved here. But what is, what is it right to, care about and think about and teach about and discuss about. And the community one, is, I, I, you know that you and I an, uh, have an odd position in relation to that. Uh, I think that it can bring you ju just so far, because I, I think there's been a, a wrong statement made in relation to community in Ireland. We did not fall from <laughs> community. Uh, 
There's no evidence that we didn't have significant class exploitation in from the very minute that we got our hands on the land. The agricultural labourers eating in the barn outside and so forth. The arrival of the McCormick mowing machine said you don't have to depend on the neighbours anymore. I'm totally in favour of the cooperative movement, but the most neglected formative institution in Ireland, in the, I was doing the... 1916 and all of that. The one movement never mentioned at all was the cooperative movement. It got no space at all. Uh, for the simple people, it didn't like it. You see, people like their individualism. I was always quote Tony about it all, about it all. You know, why do the, the uh, tadpoles put up with their miserable existence? You know, tadpoles, lovely phrase, where Tony, and when he said, in the hope that one day one of their number will sprout a jaw and jump to earth and become a frog. That's the answer to your question. About it, if you want, <laughs> okay. uh, if you want, Panani about it, or many cases about it. Some of us of our age have done our bit, uh, saying in, in in many in many many cases. But it's there is such a, an issue, Miley David said. If your Irish people have a weakness worse than drink, it's the absence of moral courage. It's a matter of people speaking out on these issues. Uh, I, I know what I would be doing if I was living in the United States at the present time, or if I was living in the, U in, in, in the United Kingdom. You don't, you, would you sit quietly by and look at the arrival back of racism? Should we sit here and, and look at the emergence of homophobic hate and so forth? The, these are the issues. But the one thing you have, and particularly people uh, for myself from a family that had no opportunity of going to third level uh, and so forth, is that when you are given the intellectual tools, you have a responsibility uh, uh, to use them. And, uh, and, uh, and that means uh, taking on stuff here at home in Ireland. It means taking on stuff in Europe. But the, the notion, oh, I think, really, the, 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 I thought Polanyi was wonderful. But there was also, even in the United States as well, there are people who said, have been confessing to recently having Minsky moments. Uh, and all of this, this is a kind of, you know, it's kind of where you, you get away with it by simply saying, you know, someone I met, I actually met a real living left-wing person the other day in the train, and you know what they said, and that'll keep you going for another 50 years of, of collusion. Just literally two yeah, seconds. Quote, the other really important thing besides his dual <laughs> movement is that the free market was forced into existence by the state. There's no such thing as a free market. So he talks Absolutely. about the, the dual stuff, but that also means we need to be constantly questioning the state itself in what type of free market or market, I want to say free market, market is emerging. And that requires a lot of democratic and kind of citizen engagement. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay, I, th I think um, I the president has, has prompted some <laughs> responses with that. I'm going to take four, pe I've, I've eight people signaled, so I'm going to do two lots of four, um, starting with Sean, then Joan, then Rory, and then Kathleen, and then I'll do the next four, if that's okay. And I've five. <laughs> Everybody has what it takes to live life with dignity. 
should be somewhere at the core of that paradigm shift uh, that is going to be an obvious one required by people. Okay, thanks, Sean. Over to Joan O'Donnell. Okay, thanks, Joan. And Rory? Okay, thank you. And in this round, Kathleen. Thanks. Sure, of course. Not just because of the party, but because of the political context. 
So I just don't think that they were clearly ashamed without the clearly of power, and they would have to just have the power of puppets. And Nancy Powell was absolutely right. Why did they invest in Nancy Powell? Because they made money. Because capitalism is about making money. So I suggest an alternative, which I begin to say in the film, which is quite particular, which is the ethics of care that have been very well developed, for example, in the feminist unit, which is very powerful and ties into what the president said about cooperation in this regard. But it is a completely different sector. It is about sustainability, not just for our generation, but for future. So I think we do need how you think to articulate a different kind of ethics. Because that's what the president has said. Just as in the middle of the crisis, we went to the whole group of unemployed workers who had been made redundant in the economics industry, a number of people sat down, we went to Monica, work going cooperative, 89,000 people employed from the 1950s. We modeled their cooperative attitude earlier, their cooperative. We have no national sustainable education or anything else in that field in this country. Afterwards, we were in the business unit. We went to the Joint Heritage Committee on business, a whole group of us. We made position papers, absolutely nothing. So I just say, are we, I don't think it's just a matter about particular capitalism in the sector. We need to produce alternative models of economic organization on the ground. And when we produce them on the ground that are sustainable, worker owner employees that are industry led, that they produce products that people need, that they're sustainable, then people will listen. And on universities, as a member of one, most places they listen. We're disgraceful. We have not produced any new models in economics that were, or our alternatives. For pe and people were crying out, I can't tell you under the people contacted me, where can we start this? How can we do it? With the government proposal? The Scottish National Executive has a unit, for example, to start this adaptive. We have absolutely nothing, and our universities don't do it. And just to compliment the sector, I started my career in psychometric sector. <laughs> <laughs> Answer that you want. Yeah. That the school has produced in the first instance. Yeah. It is, and I think you raised profound questions, though, which nobody talks about here the power of professionals. Yeah. I have seen the rise of psychology as professionals in that field where there's a lot of money made by mental institutes, and I've seen the rise of economics. I did it in my an undergraduate, by the way. And I think that that is a question we don't ask in this country. Where are the professionals that we educate in our universities? create a defense. I'm sorry, most of us are sitting prettily in our comfortable career positions. And I think you raise profound questions, apart from the unscientific nature of Thank you, Kathleen. A, a tour de force there and lots to take up. I have six people already indicated that they want to get in again. I'm inclined to close it at that because I know people will be beginning to get coffeeed out and I'm going to take the whole six together after this round, if that's okay. So I'd ask those six to be relatively precise um, and short with your... With your so I, and, and I'd ask the panel as well to be as, as, as concise as you can be. I, yes. I know you got a... a we're whirlwind of questions there. But I will. I'll be, be very precise. Yeah. Uh, so I'm to just going to answer Sean and Catherine. Um, so the, the, the paradigm shift that's required, uh, universal basic income, I've argued continu continuously, is not, a, is not a solution. It's, uh, it's extraordinarily costly. It's a way of uh, commodifying people, giving them money, and then um, privatizing services. Now, I know you'd say, let's, let's not do that, but this is why the neoliberals and the libertarians are always in favor of universal basic income. Um, uh, universal basic, sorry? Not the only <laughs> well, I know, I know. But, um, but then the left say, uh, let's have both, universal basic income. And, but you, you can't do it. Uh, it. It doesn't add up, and I think the, the ethics are, are quite different. I like the idea of universal basic services because it provides collective um, prov pr provision, uh, which is also much more eff effective uh, rather than, for example, giving people money and then letting them p purchase their own medical care. That's absurd. So we, we, we should go down the collective route, I argue. Um, and then to, to Catherine, capitalism. Oi. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think 
there's, there's two problems here. One is everything has to be done very, very quickly. Um, and I, I, I don't think we'll have abolished capitalism in 12 years' time. So we have to think of capitalism. And I don't see why the notion of green capitalism, I don't, I don't think that's a, a, prob a problematic one. Um, I don't see why we shouldn't have a solar-powered capitalism, just as we've had carboniferous capitalism. I think Trump's notion of coal base is just stupid, and there's lots to be said for, for moving ahead of the time. So there's a very strong business interest. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised I'm saying this, but there's a strong business interest in, in moving uh, to, to new uh, technologies uh, and um, with, with, with first leader advantage and so forth. Um, but uh, so, so that, that's why I, I'm always concerned about transitions. And in this case, you can get uh, finance capital as well beh behind you. Um, I was talking with Nick Robbins at the LSE, and he says finance can shift. Uh, it doesn't have, you know, embodied capital quite quickly, if there's a notion that stranded that oil assets will be s stranded. So there is. Um, we need to get the forces of capitalism behind change, but then add to those, I was arguing, issues about distribution and consumption. Thank you. Can I start with, um, is it Catherine, Kathleen, or Kathy? Kathleen. Kathleen. <laughs> um, it's an incredibly important question, and I fear that perhaps it's just because I sort of start from your position, which is this stuff has to change now, and so one kind of gets into the very practical. But I begin from your position, and that's why actually we just spent a whole week in Mondragon uh, visiting the plants, because the idea of, you know, let's do stakeholder instead of shareholders, like, yeah, okay, let's learn from those who've done it for real, as opposed to what I was kind of, you know, facetiously talking about, the cocktail talk about it. Um, but what's interesting is, you know, because I kind of disagree with what you just said about finance, you know, Marx was very good on this. He said the eight-hour workday that could have been, you know, kind of, good, right, because people were working 12 hours, 24 hours, was then subsumed by capital just to kind of speed up the machines and, and you know, even more profit and surplus value was taken. So any kind of win by, you know, labor, for example, can quickly get subsumed in the same way that finance might look like. It can move towards the good stuff, but then how it does the good, you know, the finance for good or the tech for good, that's what is deeply often embedded within kind of, you know, the, these power relationships are within those instruments. And so, I mean, the kind of position we've taken and why we go to Mondragon and why, for example, I think that UBI is a problem in terms of the power relationship. You know, sorry, I'm being a bit circular here. UBI is loved by the tech billionaires. Why? Because just the narrative is still, they're the wealth creators, and then they're gonna hand out some money so the working class can do, do poetry classes and then, you know, do something else. So the universal basic services means reinventing the welfare state as well. We just ran a whole seminar series on this at the British Library, the idea that somehow you redefine services, you have a serious debate, you bring communities to the table, you bring labor to the table to rethink how to really redesign the welfare state instead of sort of bringing in the private sector to help do good things within the welfare state and along the way, because the instruments are so problematic, actually produce really problematic outcomes. I mean, the PFI schemes are the perfect example, right? Um, and so I just think in order to create real change though, that thing about capitalism sucks, we need to get rid of it because it's all just about profit maximization. We can all agree with that in this room, but that doesn't create the change. It is actually going instrument by instrument and changing these power relationships. Every time we go to war, it's not done through capitalism, right? When, when the military even does health, because soldiers do get sick, on the battlefields, when they fund health, they fund it in a fundamentally different way from when the Department of Health funds it. They just put in a lot of money into the system and then allow the pharmaceutical companies to just make billions or trillions just by setting whatever price they want. The military isn't so stupid. And I see a lot of military uh, uh, uniforms here. When they wanna do stuff, they have a purpose, they wanna win the war or with NASA, get to the moon and back again. And how they structured the public-private interaction was actually not capitalistic. <laughs> it was, let's get the job done. Yes, come in, but you're not gonna make a mega profit. You just need to produce this bit that we need on whether it's on the International Space Station or on the, you're looking at me weird. My point is that we, 
Of course, of course, the military industrial complex, et cetera. But the point is there's many things that we're currently doing that are not run by the pure profit maximization logic. Learning from them, I mean, if you look at how BARDA, the Biotech Advanced Research Development Association works, or the, um, the, um, the Neglected Disease uh, Fund in the US uh, government, how they fund health innovation, then the price reflects that kind of public contribution. They don't get messed about with the price system that they have allowed when there's no kind of urgency. So my work on missions is saying, why don't we apply with the same level of urgency and transformation of the productive system to social priorities and social imperatives that we instead seem to do so well when it's simply sort of a military type objective? Um, sorry, I feel like I went around circles there. Just one quick thing on the cost benefit analysis that the question that was being asked, I think, by Rory. That's why, I mean, we're currently working with the Treasury to say, had the, again, whether it's the moon landing or even the setting up of the welfare state, if there had been a net present value calculation or cost-benefit analysis done, it just wouldn't have happened. And so what are the new types of metrics? As much as we think performativity <laughs> and pure performance measures are a problem, you still actually need very different types of metrics that allow you to nurture and appreciate all the dynamic spillovers that happen along the way. Um, and so, I mean, one of the points of being outcomes oriented, and this comes to the other question, I think it was uh, Sean, or I can't remember who, sorry, or Joan, about the new capacities. I'll just say something quickly about that. That is about transforming, um, you know, budgets. In instead of thinking of, you know, here's, you know, knife crime in London, here's a bit of money for youth services, here's a bit of money for health, here's a bit of money for schools, how do you really revise budgets themselves to be outcomes oriented. What does that mean? There's currently a lot of work being done on that, for example, at the council level. Camden Council has a whole debate about outcomes-based budgeting. We haven't learned about that at the state level, even in Europe, where they still obsess about the percentage of the deficit. Italy, for example, has had a low deficit for years, but a very high debt to GDP, precisely because they haven't had the kind of public and private active strategic investments. But what does it mean to then ask, what does this mean for how we think about budgets and deficits and debt to be outcomes oriented instead of just, you know, kind of treating the economy as a household. Do we have the tools, instead of just having the Minsky moment or the Keynes moment, what does that actually mean for the different way that we devise the budget? What does it mean for, again, procurement, for that bottom-up experimentation? What does it mean for interdepartmental collaboration? Currently, they're, you know, very siloed. And it's these kind of capabilities, as well as kind of the risk-taking. As soon as a civil servant screws up, they're on the front page of the Daily Mail, whereas the venture capital community boasts about it all the time. But what do we mean by risk-taking in the public sector? It's not just risk for the sake of risk. It's, you know, actively um, nurturing that experimentation, the trial and error and error, which we know you need to undergo in order to achieve anything ambitious. Um, but currently, that's not allowed. And we don't even have portfolio analysis, really, except in some public funds. Um, and that's why the EIB, even in Europe, is so just worried about its AAA rating. So it's not actually playing its proper role that you would need a European investment bank to play right now. So again, what does a new type of rating uh, uh, criteria mean that would allow that kind of ambitious risk taking in order to get the kind of universal basic services we require, which will require also lots of experimentation. Okay, thank you, and thank you for addressing specifically a couple of the state scale questions. Yes, and I, I'll be very brief because I just, they have been so, they've been answered very thoroughly. But I just want to say one thing that is, uh, strikes me and to be very optimistic in responding to the questions. The word innovation was used. Uh, innovation can be translated as change. Uh, but every now and again, uh, there's one area where I do have some competence from the time I was Minister for Culture in 93-97, I was President of the Council of Culture Ministers in 96, and I saw something very striking, a difference between what we're discussing today, and that is in music, in theatre, performance, in the arts, the visual arts, and so forth, how people can actually break away into something new. And it is because of the, the absence from everything we've heard in many cases is any respect for the idea of public aesthetics. The idea is of sending them to the libraries, sending them to the theatres, sending them to this and so forth. The interesting, wonderful thing, people like Arthur Miller having lunch one time once said about giving it 1980, it isn't when I have written the play, it's when there's a bunch of us, the stage directors, the actors, myself, around a stage. 
and something is performed and it isn't finished until it isn't but you have the, 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 the audience communicate with it. That is the exact opposite of everything in the economic discourse. And yet, at the same time, post-2008, you know, and even at a time long ago, 25 years ago, people would say, we must be creative. There's a beautiful word in Irish, which is much better, cruhiocht, the Lord is fe feminine. But the most, most interesting is how they couldn't see that. There's the ability to actually, for people to come together uh, to uh, see a beautiful, hear a beautiful piece of music, see an entirely new thing in the stage and so forth. You lost that instinct. You don't have it. Because when you're talking about some of these groups, and people would sometimes after the end of these corporate entertainments or something, hire an artist to come on. It's uh, a kind of t as a, a DJ Steve. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is this tells you something. It tells you about, if you like, where deep in the philosophical world, where people do the work, you mentioned the Greeks and all of the rest of it. It's very, very interesting in the early period about the balances that they sought in relation to the aesthetic, even in relation to the appropriation of to the human body and so forth. And I think uh, that uh, was in the mind of Adorno when it led him to his pr profound pessimism. And I think that is the great contribution of Jürgen Habermas, that he escaped from Adorno's pessimism. But also, I thought about it, about it, about the tyranny of technos. The idea, the point about it is, could people safely, psychologically, and Truman said, none of us has the expert solution. Uh, we're going to think, or whatever, like that. But someone, ha you see, there is, this is the issue about the crowd. There is, I totally agree with you in relation uh, to the whole possibility of new forms of cooperation, but it requires uh, uh, capacities that have to be, uh, uh, that have to be encouraged, uh, even in relation to the, you know, very, very well. Uh, people learn to be greedy. We train people to be greedy. We inculcate people that greed is good. And that is capitalism. So the fact is, then, about in many cases, I don't intend to raise waste with, I mean, I'm very interested. There are good things that are happening. By the way, we are doing good things, lest I sound pessimistic. The delivery board and the Tishans office is a great idea. The interdepartmental cooperation is an excellent idea, and so on. But there are important things in relation. Why did I, why in my paper that people may look at there, why do I quote Hartmut Rosa? Because he went back uh, to people like Simmel and the Metropolis and Mental Life and that work about how do people, what is the experience of a migrant in the city in relation to the, the reaction on the body, in relation to the sensation on the street, in relation to the use of the five senses. That is about how we live. So the point about it is, the message to, by me to all of this technoc stuff is, Will you please allow the rest of us who are intellectual workers to have some space in the discourse that when you have fixed it all up for us, you seem to me sometimes about the, when people talk about the technical thing, it's like as if you're deciding how to print your calendar uh, for, the, for the rest of us. This is why I, as president of our many minutes, the reason I, I'm here is very, very, very simple about that is that it isn't until you have engaged with the, the agony of the world, and it isn't until you have taken it into yourself, as Hartmut Rosa speaks, and it isn't until you see all the chaos and the catastrophe of broken relationships all around you, that then you turn and you say, on the material side, would this help? On the other side, this is why my interest in Ian's work, if you made basic necessities, would it eliminate this and this and this? But before you begin and how you end, the unpopular thing very, very much for, for many, many people who don't like listening to this kind of thing is how do you live? And what about the subjects like philosophy? What about the subjects like ethics and all of the others? Are they soft stuff? No, they're not. They're about, in fact, actually encountering and respecting and responding to dignity on the street. 
And that's where the whole thing has failed. That's why in many cases, mediating institutions, trade unions, if they lose their numbers, when there are no mediation institutions, can you stop the starving person from breaking the window? Can you morally condemn it? Can you say to the person who is going home, whose children used to be able to go to school and can't go to school anymore because there are no teachers, because things have been privatised, what do you say to them? To go to a seminar? <laughs> I can tell you, this is the point. This is the point where we are at a point where the globalised, financialised form of capitalism has democracies we have come to know it teetering teetering to the point of possibly, for example, not being able any longer to have anything significant to say on the streets of the world. Okay, Karen, can I just say so, a super quick thing? Because we brought artists in the industrial strategy work. Like Brian Eno, he kept saying, why do you keep assuming that the point of the future mobility mission is to go from point A to point B quicker? What if it's actually to go slower? And Oliver Eliasson, who's just done a big retrospective at the Tate, has this whole thing about experience and the idea of public space itself. Public space is not just filling a gap of private space. It's not a doormat, he says, or the private space. It's all about how you experience a square, for example. And as economists, we have no idea how to interact with that conversation. We have only to learn from the artists. And Brian Eno, the most useful thing he did in our commission for mission-oriented industrial strategy, he said, I would love to write a story about care, about how the street would feel differently if your care mission was enacted. He said it would fundamentally change how people live. Um, sorry, how, literally how you feel, how you interact. And it's just interesting to compare that also to money. Money is not just a medium of exchange. How you design the financial system fundamentally affects what happens. How you design our streets fundamentally defines what happens. Um, but we only have to learn from the artists. So we brought them and we just shut it up and said, talk to us because we have no idea as economists how to interact with those issues. Yeah. I'm, I'm conscious. When we told you how you design a schedule and what time you order coffee at matters, I'm sure, for many people in the room. I've, I've six people listed. I'm, I can only really give a minute each and then go back to the panel with roughly the same time to give you a last word and a chance to respond selectively. Is that okay? And we'll, we'll try and get coffee at. I've already got an indication from one person that they're comfortable to two people which is great. Okay, so um, I have yourself over there. I have Joan Burton, I have PJ Drudy, and I have Michael Taft at the back. Michael's okay too, so yeah, so as quick as you can. Thank you very much. Joe. Uh, thank you, uh, Joan Burton. First of all, uh, thank you to uh, all our speakers, and particularly to Patrick for the interesting morning. Um, I just wanted to make a small point uh, to come back to the subject of outsourcing and uh, the fact that actually now in government capacity, that particularly at minimum wage jobs, uh, people who act as porters and cleaners and other kind of service that they have are being outsourced. 
Thank you. And then PJ, you have to. I'm no, sorry, and then yourself. the last speaker, yeah, if you can be precise. Thank you. Thank you. And, and just to remind speakers, in, in summing up, give like the, the one minute rule <laughs> must, must apply because uh, it's 25 to now and I do want to give people a chance yeah. to have uh, a coffee and to have those conversations with each other and try and achieve that ripple. Yeah. I, I'm going to, be, to obey you entirely you. this time. There's <laughs> um, <laughs> power. I think, <laughs> I think that the word citizen would solve a lot of the problem that Joachim has just said. If you, for example, think of the, the idea of an Irish citizen, 
European citizen, but the most powerful one now is of a global citizen. And a global citizen has the notion not only of a, is hugely different from a global consumer. A global citizen is somebody who carries a diversity of stories, cultures, relationships to their proximity of place and history and ideas and so forth. Citizen is a hugely empowering word because even if the person has nothing to spend, let us say in the person, I, I always argued in cultural terms, if your person loses their job, if a person, we must always have the public arts places accessible to everybody so that you don't lose your citizenship rights of participation because you've lost your income. The invigorating word is, is the idea of an economics that is appropriate for concerned global citizens, European citizens, I think. And that'll change everything, including the way people fall into the trap of speaking to other people as customers. Thank you. Interesting. I'll start with the last one and then go to the pharma one. Um, so I was speeding up, obviously, too quickly. The missions bit was a report that I wrote for the European Union, which then was voted on by the Council and the European Parliament, which made missions now be a legal instrument. So it's great. You know, books are nice to write, and you can sell them. But a report that is voted on by the Parliament is fantastic. So this new missions instrument, the first question is actually, as I mentioned before, who decides? At what the missions are, and citizen engagement is critical, and that's literally the hardest bit. There's, if you go through the report, there's like six big questions that one has to act, ask with missions, including how to fuel that bottom-up experimentation so you don't level the playing field, you tilt it towards a direction, you create missions for that, but then you don't kind of micromanage it, otherwise you stifle innovation, bottom-up, but to fuel a public goal. And by public, it doesn't mean state, it means publicly decided on almost like a commons. That bit is really hard, and that does require redefining what is the community, what is the citizen. GDS, by the way, Government Digital Services, you, you should look into how they recently set up gov.uk. The first thing they did was say, we're not doing this for, you know, we don't define the citizen as a customer or client, but then they said we define them as a user. And that also doesn't sound that inspiring, but then they describe what they meant by user in terms of transforming the experience of a person with the welfare state itself in terms of being empowering instead of a handout. Anyway, it's whatever. Um, but so, and, and bringing the arts to the table is important when, you know, if you read Kennedy's speech, inspiring, et cetera, but what does it mean today, not just to talk about STEM subjects with our innovation strategy, but literally if we think that the really important thing is conversations in society and communities at the local level about these public goals, how to really make them inspirational we can learn from Blue Planet without David Attenborough's, you know, documentary, and that's, I guess, in the arts, the last episode of all that plastic in the ocean, all these children across, you know, the world have become interested and politicized through that, and that was an arts program. It wasn't, you know, an academic going around and talking about plastics. The pharma stuff we wrote, as you know, we collaborated with you through the Institute on a piece called The People's Prescription, but bringing, again, public value to the heart of health innovation. And there, I mean, all the issues you quickly talked about, it's, it's misdirected, you know, way over emphasis, even through public budgets on kind of rich people's uh, diseases. It's governed really badly. You talked about human rights, or someone did. Um, it's not, you know, the word rights has been abused. Intellectual property rights are not you know, from God. These are contracts that the state gives the private sector for 20 years, 20-year monopoly profits. They should be governed really, really carefully so that they're not abused. And the huge issue in pharmaceuticals is we've allowed the patents, which mm -hmm. are kind of okay if well-governed, to be creating terrible value for the public sector, which gives them that 20-year monopoly. They are too wide, they're used strategically, they're Marianne, too strong, hard to license. To. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, I could say outsourcing. <laughs> outsourcing. I mean, just quickly, you know, the the outsourcing trend is a self-fulfilling prophecy of the way we have talked about the state. And so, you know, and by the way, I don't think it's such a big deal when we outsource. I, I know this could be super controversial, so sorry, but cleaning and um, 
and catering, for example, in universities, because a lot of students strike about that, but when you outsource the core of what you're providing, as Obama did, he did Obamacare and then outsourced the insurance program. It is an insurance program. Outsourcing the management of IT is what got us the NSA. So partly it's about the labor contracts and that, of course, we need to care about that for the cleaning contracts that are outsourced. But when you're outsourcing your core function in the state to, for example, provide well for prisoners, to provide wealth for, for students and schools, to create, you know, to design and nurture the best hospitals possible. When you outsource that to a for-profit model, it's a disaster. Yeah. And I think you can continue over, Carl. I could just, we just need um, to, thank you. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for your uh, endorsement of needs. I, I think we have to tackle preference theory, which underlies the whole thing. Needs then provide a link to rights. Socioeconomic rights are based on the notion of universal needs and that leads to citizenship. So I think that is the, the, the connection which we can make across here. And I was gonna say more, but I'll stop there. You can say more <laughs> over coffee. Um, ju just to say, I mean, coffee time very clearly, but, but President, you, you said earlier, why were you here? And that your main interest is in the discussion which is not taking place. And I think you can be happy that you have opened up many aspects of discussions that aren't taking place. And you know, th there is so many things, power, ethics of care, um, nature of democracy, the institutions, there are so many places to take those discussions that I think it is our challenge now, the president has challenged us to, with him um, and without him, uh, to, to continue these discussions and find ways of having them. So, a boss to all involved. <laughs>